There we go. Is that working? Nope, not yet. Lapel mic. Is this working now? Green light is on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Green light. Today is the day of technical difficulties. That's all right. It's interesting. I can try and talk with this mic and do the same with my hands, but it's a lot of stuff for my brain to do at the same time. All right, well, shall I start? There we go. Here it is. It takes a village. Look at those guys. So great. Thanks. Well, welcome again, friends. My good friend Dawson is here, who's a part of our community for a really long time. Lives in Kelowna now. I also have a very special guest, and I'm totally going to introduce her publicly, and she's already like, don't even. This is my best friend from college, Leanne. And Leanne is the person that introduced me to my husband, Wade. Yeah. And thank you very much. And we were in theater school together, in case you couldn't tell. And um, she's Sophia's godmother. She was the matron of honor at my wedding. We've been through lots together. And it's really special for me that she's here today. That being said, I'm just going to go get the Kleenex right now. Because as soon as Stephen was praying for me, like, more of you, Holy Spirit, I was like, oh, whenever there's more of the Holy Spirit, I always get choked up. People have told me before that they've been like, that lady that cries when she teaches. So I'm not guaranteeing it, but I'm just saying it might happen. So I should just get these Kleenex that match this vase of flowers that I brought this morning. So we do have our sermons recorded and they are available for listening on a podcast. And I know that if nobody else listens to this sermon, two people are going to listen because Gordy and Kathleen Lagore, who are our lead pastors, always listen to every sermon that happens when they're away. So Gordy, we want to say congratulations on your graduation. We're really proud of you. Yay! So Gordy has done a three-year course in spiritual direction, and this is his graduation weekend, and he is at Rivendell celebrating doing that, which is great. He also is a great sermon slide preparer. So those of you who were here last week will recognize that I just flat out stole the first 10 slides of his sermon from last week because they were so good. Why make them all over again? So uh, for those of you who've been here, you know this well. For those of you who don't, brief review. Our church has been going through the book of Exodus. Yep. Exodus, like Moses, Egyptians, children of Israelite, desert, Exodus. And it's been pretty interesting. The whole vibe has been about lessons from the desert. What, what did they learn and what can we learn from them? And those of you who are familiar with this story know that, um, that the children of, uh, the people of Abraham, the people of Israel originally went from around where the start of that era goes, over here during a famine to the land of Egypt, during Joseph's time. And then they really multiplied, and there were lots and lots and lots of them. The Pharaoh got afraid of them. They became slaves. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 odd years. And then God brought them out of Egypt as a people. And that is the story of Exodus that we've been traveling through. These are arrows of places where they stopped along the journey. So this, this second red line that goes down and around is the journey they took to get home. So not such a direct route as it was to get there. And they've been going through all kinds of adventures. And right now, where we are in the journey is Exodus 31. And 
For those of you who've been following along in our story, you know that Moses is currently at the top of Mount Sinai. And he has been up there for a while. And, oh wait, I should do, do a, a few more little pieces of review of some of the big lessons from the past, I would say the last month or so. So some of the things that have been coming out, and it's really, really interesting because it's been mirroring what's been happening for our church in many ways with our journey in that we've been learning about better rhythms, healthier rhythms. And so this is a story of people who have been slaves and they're basically learning how to be free. And so a lot of the rhythms that God is establishing for them are about trust, are about believing that God could provide for them when they didn't have a slave master there to provide for them, how God is providing for them supernaturally. Um, These rhythms of life as a people included things like instituting Sabbath. They never had a weekend. They didn't have a day off. When you're a slave, you don't get days off. And they didn't know how to rest. And the other thing is, is they were living these driven, driven lives. But they were learning how to travel together as a community. And when you're traveling with, I don't actually even know how many people were there traveling together. Do people who are more scholarly than me know how many people there were? Dean, do you remember from when you studied how many people there were? Let's say a lot. I don't Million, a million. So let's say if you're on a road trip with a million people. Hello, kids' church theme of patience. It's going to take a while. You only go as fast as the slowest herd of animals, as fast as the slowest little kid, as fast as the pregnant women. So no wonder this was taking them a while. But what we're realizing as we go through this and what's happening in our church community at the same time is we're learning that shifting our lives to incorporate rhythms of rest takes a long time. And the mind shift takes a long time. I had the privilege of being at the Vineyard Leaders Retreat earlier this week with my husband Wade and our lead pastors, Gordy and Kathleen. And I came, um, a couple of people, a couple different churches in the BC region, just at dinner, different people were talking about the EHS course. And I was like, yeah, our church just did that. And I said to one lady at dinner, I said, go careful, it's going to mess up your church. And she went, what? I said, no, it's going to mess up your church in a really good way. Because if you invite everybody to think about if their life is healthy or not, some people are going to discover that their life isn't that healthy. And people are going to step down and stop volunteering and... uh, need breaks. And I said, we're in the middle of doing a survey to evaluate like how everybody volunteers. And we don't even know what exactly that's going to look like. And we're figuring it out. So I said, so it's good. But if you go, like, it's going to kind of mess you up, but in a really good way. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. Thanks. (laughs) Like, she's the type of person that I think she could receive it. And I don't know if, if you read Gordy's um, letter to us this week. Our pastor always writes an email. And he was talking about the 
very exciting Sunday that we had last week here, where during his sermon, the fire alarm went off. We discovered that one kids' church group was lighting sparklers. Then later on, there was a very strong smell of gas in the building. Thank God at that point in time when we were evacuating, we didn't know about the sparkler gas leak combination. We only learned later the grace of God. I was like, somebody said at the retreat, a guest, Teresa Paul, she said, oh yeah, yeah, the class was lighting sparklers. I said, I'm sorry, you're telling me that one of the kids' church classes was lighting sparklers while the other one was accidentally letting off gas in the kitchen. <laughs> she was like, yeah, and Gordy was like, no, it wasn't quite that dramatic, but I liked to imagine it was that dramatic. But what we did discover was that while the gas that escaped was, was, that was fine, when the Fortis inspector came, there was actually a teeny tiny gas leak in our gas line that would not have been discovered if we hadn't had that accidental leaving on of the element and the evacuation. And Gordy said, was asking God, is there anything that you want to say to us on this? And he said, I kind of feel like that's been sort of the outflow of this sermon series and during Lent, trying to listen to God and to each other and listening for healthy rhythms and EHS and trying to say, are we actually listening? Do we have any areas that are kind of dangerous habits? Are there things that we need to watch out and change? And I'm sure not coincidentally at all, because it's never coincidence, this totally lines up with what's happening in my life this week, even though I'm randomly assigned this teaching slot and this topic <laughs> months ago. You know, God knows that on April 29th, this is going to be totally applicable for me. So I'm going to share with you how this is applying to me and my life and what God's speaking to me. So I want to start off by saying that this is not me bringing a sermon that I have totally figured out. I have not nailed all this stuff. Unlike all the other sermons I've ever brought you where I figured everything. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I'm really on a learning curve with the stuff that we're going to look at today. So uh, to review right now, um, oh, and this is my big idea in case I forget to tell you, because memory is not super great. This is my big idea for today, and I'll talk about it at the end. God's gifts of freedom, both for using our hands and for rest, are necessary for our whole health, our body, our mind, our spirit, and our emotions. So that's the two things that are going to come up in this chapter. God's going to talk about the incredible creative gifts that he's given to people, and he's going to talk about Sabbath again, rest, and how both those things are hand-in-hand are hand necessary for our whole health. So back to our review. When we last left Moses, he was still up on Mount Sinai. And the reason why you're like, Sinai, hasn't he been there a while? He really has. We've been going through many chapters since like chapter 20 because what happened is God told Moses a whole bunch of stuff when he was up there. And so it takes lots and lots of chapters to explain all the things that God spoke to Moses for the people of Israel while he was up there. So we're actually at the last things, the last things he said. And I like to think that there's sometimes a little bit more emphasis on whatever the last thing is that you left to say to people. And finally, the thing I really want you to remember. So Gordy got a little bit interrupted last week 
um, in showing us some of the details, but, but the chapters that we were looking at last week were all about the incredibly detailed, beautiful things that God was asking the people of Israel to make. Because um, basically God said, everybody can play and everybody can be priests. And the people of Israel went, no way, you're way too scary. This is really scary. We want to do this in a way that feels a little bit more controlled. And out of kindness, God said, okay, we'll do this in a way that you feel like you can manage this better, which is we'll make a little place where I live. This is going to be the tent. It's going to be the tabernacle. It's going to be the place of meeting. And we'll have people that are specially priests that come in and they visit with me. But God's heart was always for face-to-face -face connection with his people. And so that's what he's doing with Moses. He's talking face-to-face -face with him. There are other leaders that went up during that time, and he's hanging out. Um, and so the specific instructions that he gives are important for the next bit that we're going to talk about today, uh, basically because it's kind of helpful to realize how crazily specific these instructions were. It wasn't like he just said, make a place, it'll be nice, put out some throw pillows, it'll be great. Like, really, he said, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to make me an ark. And then it was as specific as like, it needs to be 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide. There's got to be some gold rings. There's going to be an atonement cover. There's going to be a chair. So Gordy talked about the significance of this. At this, there was a place where God was going to meet. But there were incredibly specific, specific details. The table of the showbread. Instructions. How to make this guy. Oh, I hope it's not stuck again. I have a lot of pictures to show you. Yeah, can you try and forward it, please? Thanks, Kenny. Is it stuck again? Okay, so I'll show you all the pictures in a minute. But basically, there were pictures that Gordy was going through last week of make a table that you're going to burn things on. This is the very specific measurements of this. This is how beautiful it's going to be. There are pictures of the place where the priests were going to wash this thing that had to be built. There was an altar for burning things on. Specific instructions about that. Then the clothes that the priests wore were unbelievably specific. And we kind of got it. Oh, here we go. So there's a lampstand. So there's a meaning to every part of every bit of this lampstand. That was the, the altar of acacia wood for incense. That's what that was. So that's the incense altar. Then the next picture is the place where the priests wash. This next picture is the picture of burning the sacrifices. So then this next one, if, we, if it can keep going, way to go PowerPoint. So then what the priests were supposed to wear was specifically outlined. This is how you're going to weave this thing. They're going to have a breastplate. Every one of the stones meant something. And it was all about people's names. It was the names of the tribes of Israel. And um, they were, there were bells along the bottom. And it references, it says, this is, this is the work of skilled hands all the way through it. It's it skillfully made waistband is going to be this. 
These are the two chains of braided gold. Um, is that going to work again? So here's more pictures of what that breastplate likely looked like. Even this fabric, incredibly, incredibly specific detail as to every part of the garment, what they were supposed to wear, what it was supposed to look like. And I'm thinking, these people are traveling in tents. But to be fair, they did bring an offering. We did hear about that. So they brought an offering, and we know that when they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them tons of gold and precious items, precious things. So then they came and they brought so much of the offering, actually, they had to say, that's enough, that's enough, we've got enough. Um, but the verse that we're going to get to um, is about the fact that God then says, and guess what? I'm sending you some guys that know how to, or the guy, there's already amongst you people who know how to do the stuff I just told you to do. So we're going to talk about that in just a second, but my first thought is, what a relief. Because if somebody gives you a list that long, I don't know, I'm in church leadership, right? If we had a list that long, I'd be like, okay, so we're going to do all these things in church? Okay, good to know. So let's, um, I'm going to read into the mic this reading so that it can be heard on our podcast as well. But this is, I'm reading to you now from the book of Exodus, chapter 31. And the first part of this I'm reading to you from the New Living Translation. The craftsmen, Bezalel and Oholiab. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, and the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Oholiab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things that I have commanded you to make. And then here's the list, the tabernacle, the art of the covenant, the ark's cover, the place of atonement, all the furnishings, the table, its utensils, its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering, all of its utensils, the wash basin, the beautifully stitched garments for the priest and his sons, the anointing oil, I'm skipping parts of it, you can look it up, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. So all this list, the craftsmen must make everything as I have commanded you to make. So, yeah, my first thought is, when I hear that God sent people to know how to do this stuff is, wow, that's such good news. That's so great. Um, and isn't that just like God? To ask us to do something and then to give us the gifts within our community to make it happen. And I can think about how often in our community where it can feel like in a lot of times that we're lacking in resources for various reasons. And yet, in reality, I don't feel like as a community we really lack for much at all. When we get together and I see what the different people can do, I mean, even this morning is an example. It's like, oh, I don't know how this thing's gonna work. Well, this person's gonna solve this. Well, this person will help. Well, this person will come. 
And it's such good news that God does give us gifts that we need. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me about this is how important beauty is to God. It's so interesting to me that he was really specific about making the church a beautiful place. And this is something that has been really debated by people that follow God for a long time. How much money and how much effort and how much energy to put in to our places and spaces of worship. And we have an interesting scenario here in that we have a building that had a lot of resources poured into it at one time. And then we inherited it from a congregation that had very little resources of energy, of, of youth, of time, of money, and a lot of the space is worn down, yet we still have these parts of beauty that are here. And it was interesting to me to even dive in just a little bit and do a little bit of research to what people say about why church buildings should or should not be beautiful or elaborate or special places. But I do need to say that it's something that's been enough on our hearts and come up enough from enough people in our community that we are really praying for our lease to be settled with the Anglican Diocese because we do want to try and improve the space a bit here because, as Wade says often, pretty counts. Pretty counts. And what's so interesting to me is that when you read about theologians or people that have studied what impacts people, beauty actually plays a really significant and important part. There's, um, uh, I couldn't find this study, but I know I have heard it a few times around a, a theologian named Ray Bakke, who's written about working in urban settings or urban places. And he talked about how important beauty is to the poor. That when there was a talk of a beautiful building being torn down and it was like, we need the money for the poor. And the poor was like, no, we need beauty. We need beauty. I thought for the first time as we were reading this today, how utterly evil it was during colonization that the gifts of craftsmanship were taken from the First Nations people. The gifts of art and what beautiful redemption comes when people are using their hands for art to create and worship again. I found a study that was fascinating and it's recent and it was published in the UK last year that says one in six young people between the ages of 11 and 18 are now identifying themselves as practicing Christians. And 13% of teenagers said that they decided to become a Christian because they visited a beautiful church or a cathedral. The influence of visiting a beautiful church building was more significant to them than attending a youth group, going to a wedding, or speaking to other Christians about their faith. The people that commissioned the study were so shocked by the results that they actually held the study for six months because they couldn't believe that such a high figure was accurate. And they had to recount it. And they said, current new methods are being invested that visiting a beautiful space attracted more children and young people to the church than other methods. So I don't even know really what to say about that because I don't think it's necessary that we stop doing those other things because I think we still need conversation. We need places for young people to belong. But I thought that was extraordinary. And then the other thing that really hit home for me personally was 
thinking about, and, and, and I've been, I had been thinking about this before I started my sermon prep, the importance of using our hands to do something that we love to do that gives us joy on our health. Um, because I, many of you who know me well know that uh, it'll be three years in August, I suffered a significant burnout, breakdown, I'm still finding words that I feel really good about, but what happened essentially was that it manifested in my brain not working. Thinking of that, I'll stop talking with my hands, sorry Rob. Um, it manifested in my brain not working properly. And it's been um, an interesting journey because it's taken a long time to find any doctors that could actually talk to me about what was happening in my brain. There was a lot of um, theories where people would say it's probably due to stress and it probably was due to stress. When I talked to people about the different things that were going on in my life, it was a pretty fair guess. And when I stopped doing some of those things, I started to get healthier and I can still function pretty well. So for those of you that I don't talk to all the time, I look pretty much normal or function pretty much normally. I, those of you who know me know that I had to stop coming to church for quite a chunk of time, probably six or eight months, because part of the brain function piece was that being in a place with not, lots of noise and lots of people didn't work for me. Um, I couldn't read my emails. Uh, it was very hard. I got my words mixed up. So still now, when I'm tired, my words get mixed up. I still have chunks of memory where I lose things. I still, um, those pieces are still there. And I have a lot of, understandably, lots of questions about that because uh, I wonder if I'm gonna be able to work full time again. Uh, I still have to have a nap every day in order to function well with my kids after school and at bedtime. Um, I worry about what if I got a job and it was a place where there was music or noise or different things like that. And so finally, because I was a non-urgent case, I have waited for a year and a half to see a neurologist. And I finally got to see a neurologist this month on the 16th of April. He was able to do a battery of tests and explain that there was nothing degenerative going on with my brain, which was great news, um, and that it was due to stress that my brain had shut down. And he explained that it was like a computer where you have too many windows open. And he said, if you have too many windows open on a computer, the memory on the computer is gonna stop working. So what do you have to do? And I was like, reboot the computer? And he said, yeah, eventually, but usually some people just start trying to close some of those windows first. And I went, oh yeah, okay, sure. But then my thing was, but I already closed so many windows. I stopped working and I stopped homeschooling and I stopped doing so many things. All I could see was all the things that I'd stopped and that I had given up. And resting every day to me often doesn't feel like a gift. I don't know what this says about me. I feel like it's a character witness to it or weakness to admit it, but I don't think, oh, how lucky am I that I have the opportunity to have a rest every day. I resent it. I think I'm so angry at my body that I feel so weak that I have to rest, that I can't get through a day without having a nap. But what the neurologist said was two things. He said, um, I said, how long, how long is this gonna happen for? And he said, um, nobody knows. Nobody can give you a diagnosis on that. Nobody can see inside your brain, nobody can tell you. But he said two things, one is, 
you just need more rest, which I was just like, I'm already doing terribly at the resting part. Could I have a different prescription, please? But the second thing he said, which made total sense and is completely connected to what we're talking about now, is he said, what do you do that you love to do? What do you do that you do only for your own joy that doesn't have anything to do with taking care of anybody else in your life? I was like, um, sometimes I exercise. He said, in order for our brains to heal, we have to do things that give us joy and pleasure. That is the way that our brains have been created. And when I started reading this, these verses, I was like, of course. This is, God has made us to do things with our hands. It's just like the character and nature of God. He doesn't need all this stuff. It's not like God needed any of these things in the temple in order for us to worship him. In fact, when Jesus came and died on the cross, that temple curtain got torn right in two. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross was so that we could come face to face and be right with him. But in this case, he's setting up all these super elaborate things. Of course it makes sense that there would be some benefit for the makers, that there would be some benefit for the people that were creating those items. And I had a friend who I was having a conversation with about what my doctor had said, and she sent me an article from Psychology Today, which is called Creativity, Happiness, and Your Own Two Hands. And surprise, surprise, science totally backs up the fact that when we purposefully use our hands to do anything. So I asked people to bring things today that they had made or created using their hands. So we have some articles that Rick has written, um, art that different people have made. This is a dress, this is Rose's wedding dress that she made. This is a, a sculpture that Dean made. Um, this quilt was created by Sherry and her mom and her sisters using fabric that her grandmother had saved because her grandmother was a seamstress. And so she said when they put the quilt together, she recognized pieces of fabric from clothes that her grandmother had made. There's a tutu, did Lydia make the tutu, Anna? Lydia made this tutu. There's a bowl here that I think Will made. There's some jam that Christine made. Poems that Anna wrote. There's a poem that Eleanor wrote. But there's also, you know, we're in a church right now that has a sound system that works because of the gifts of the hands of the people that are here. Like it was a total moment of delight for me this morning because Lynn said to me, Mark's playing Wade's bass. And I said, Wade's bass was broken. Did Mark fix it? He's fixed it, he cleaned it. He totally does that. And Mark will, Mark will happily do that. I called him one day and was like, I just have a stack of computers at my house, please. I will trade you time. I call, come and do whatever my two hands can do to bless your house, but will you come and look at my computers? And he was there seriously in like 15 minutes, like, here I am coming in the door to fix your computer. Because um, it gives him such pleasure. Eleanor loves to bake. It's all she talks about. And those of you who are, we're connected on social media too, she has made meringues 
eight times in the last month because she will not give up and she just keeps making them and remaking them and then she researches the failures and then she makes them again. My husband made a meal last night that was a work of art. But what scientists are finding is that when we do anything with our hands, dig in the garden, wash the dishes, and take pleasure in using our hands when we wash the dishes, there's sometimes where I don't love ironing, but if I iron something really well, I'm like, oh, that was a good time. <laughs> and there is a, using our hands satisfies a primal need and is an antidote for cultural malaise. Too much time on technological devices and the fact that we buy almost everything that we need now has deprived us of processes that provide pleasure, meaning, and pride for many of us. So making things actually goes through our hands and it contributes to our brains and our bodies and our emotional well-being. He said, it's less about ambition, more about living. Sorry, she. And research has shown that any kind of hand activity, knitting, woodwork, growing, chopping vegetables, decreases stress, reduces anxiety, modifies depression. There's value in action, how our minds rest, how we feel purposeful or creative or practical, but what this is saying is that God has made us to do this. And his purpose in saying, I've, I want you to make all these beautiful things for me, but also I am going to give these people the skill. The skill that they possess is from me. And it is kind of shocking to think that that could be as much an indwelling of the Holy Spirit as any other manifestation that we see. I remember having a teacher when I went to YWAM who was talking about how annoyed he was at Christian merchandise. He said, nothing makes me crazier than something that has shoddily been made in China that you stuck a Jesus fish on the side of it. He said, I think it's an insult to the creator. He said, what I want is I want Christians to be so well known for the quality of everything that they do that if you saw something beautiful, you went, bet you a Christian made that rocking chair. I bet you a Christian painted that piece of picture, that piece of art. I bet you a Christian fixed that bass guitar because it was done so beautifully. It must be a reflection of how they view the creator. But I gotta be honest, this is a weird struggle for me. I feel guilty. It's something that I somehow have been programmed or whatever my perception or personality or family of origin or culture to translate this in my understanding from a luxury to a necessity. Even when I sat in the doctor's office of a guy who I waited a year and a half to see and he said to me, this is your prescription. This is the thing that is gonna make your brain well. And then I read this word and went, oh yeah, of course it is. So I need your prayers and your grace. And I don't know what we can do for each other to encourage each other more to go, heck yeah, so glad you're working in your garden. Thanks for making that soup. 
But I also think it's a mindset, and I'm going to talk about this again in a minute because the next thing God talks about is Sabbath, is how we regard all of our work and all of the things that we do with our hands. So I'm not there yet, but this is what God is talking about to me on this. So I want to take a minute and there, just take a little break before we read the next little chunk, which is about God talking about Sabbath. And I would love it if we could read this quote, and if you could take a second to discuss it either with somebody near you or if you're not comfortable talking with somebody near you to um, think about for yourself. But I had a great conversation with another woman leader at the uh, conference that I was just at, and I was asking her for her perspective on things. And she said to me, you should read this book. So I have to tell you, I haven't read this book yet because I just had this conversation with her on Tuesday or Wednesday. But when I was searching for information about this book, there were a couple of really poignant quotes that came up. So we, before we move on to our next little piece to think about Sabbath, I like to, to think about this. So this is for the podcast, a quote from a man named Mark Buchanan and a book that he wrote called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. And he says this, the opposite of a slave is not a free man. It is a worshiper. The one who is most free is the one who turns the work of his hands into sacrament and into offering. And all he makes and all he does are gifts from God, through God, and to God. So in light of thinking about how we use our hands for pleasure, or for healing, and in light of the fact that we're studying this book that is all about these slaves getting out of a slave mindset and becoming a free people, just take, uh, we're going to take about five to seven minutes to just talk about this quote. It's the opposite do you agree with this? What do you think about this concept? Is the opposite of someone who is a slave really a worshiper? And what do you think that means in all aspects of your life? As Mike Myers would say, discuss. <laughs> So what was something brilliant, either that you heard yourself say, where you're like, that's good, I should remember that thing I just said, or something that somebody else in your group said that you're like, ooh, ooh, so-and-so said something really smart, or that touched me, or helpful. Anyone? Yes, sir. Oh, I thought you raised your hand. Okay. You waiting for somebody else to talk? Mrs. Rose. Are you comfortable? Can I just give you the mic so I don't have to repeat it all back for the podcast? Otherwise, I have to repeat back everything you say. Thank you. So I was just saying, like in our group, um, Sally, Dean, and I, Sally's learning the guitar with her son. And uh, she didn't know if she'd have time. So her teacher told her to do this five minutes at a time. 
and it's actually better for your brain than sitting down for 25 minutes and oh, she's cool. actually engaging for that five minutes and just finding that five minutes and she's finding incredible pleasure in doing this and she's progressing and she's learned more than three chords and and then her teacher said to start writing music for yourself and just finding little moments and um, as somebody who has a brain injury myself I was saying you know that when I started painting um, it was five or ten or fifteen minutes at a time and so I've been painting again for the last couple years in the restoration. And my ability to paint went from, yeah, I don't show anybody, to that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's totally just fun. got better and better and better as I just painted a tiny bit each day and found incredible pleasure in producing something of beauty and that I love to do, even if I never thought I would show it to anybody. That's so great. Thanks. Yeah, I'm reading a, uh, a great book right now called Finish, because I love to start things but not finish them. But one of the things that the author said is that scientific finding is finding out that the enemy isn't, it's not perfection, it's just like finishing. And that if you want to do a goal, you have to make it fun and cut your goal in half. And he said the enemy is like the day after perfect is failed. But the day after you're like, oh, well, I didn't exercise today, forget everything. That's it. I'm not doing that goal. Um, anybody else? Something about this idea, the person who is most free is the one that turns the work of their hands into a sacrament. Anna. You can sink into his arms with your arms in the sink? I have never heard that, but I feel like I should put that up over my sink. I have never had that anointing. I was at a camp once with, with a woman who, who was like, I love washing dishes. She said, the more dishes I wash, the more people we fed today. And when I scrub out every pot, I pray for the work of God to be scrubbed out. And I remember being like, I do not have that anointing. I do not have that. God bless you. That's fantastic. Good for you. God bless you that there are people like that. So anybody else, this idea that there's freedom when we take what ever we're doing. Have you ever had an experience where there was something awful or dull and it became something that felt almost worshipful because of attitudes of, or seen that? Yes, ma'am. You feel like, so Sandra said. I feel like that when I'm cooking for my family because I hate yeah. cooking. Yeah. And my kids hate all my cooking. Yeah. And um, I kind of hate my own cooking. <laughs> and unfortunately, that has to happen every, every single day. But some days, um, it's a little bit transformed. It feels less torturous. Yeah. If I think, this is how I'm loving my family. Yeah. Even though it's super boring and it's yeah. not going to be that great and maybe it's like grilled cheese sandwiches, but it's like, hey, you know, this is, this yeah. is how I love my family. You know, That's incredible. God wants me to feed my family. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. one super easy thing to know. Like, what is God's will for me? Well, God's yeah. will for me is to just make this supper. Totally. So there you go. Those of you who know me well know my sock issues stem from the fact that I hate to sort socks and it's such an issue. But when I do finally sort all the socks in my family, it's totally because. And I don't even do it quietly or sacrificially. I say to Wade, I'm sorting socks now because I love you. And then he says, thank you. So he's very good. <laughs> Mr. Rick. Hey. Hey. Dustin, uh, Dustin and I were talking about writing. Dustin likes to write. Yeah. And um, You love to write. And uh, I, love to I love to write. I did it for a living, in fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, my... my up there, I have a uh, article, one of the first articles I wrote for BC Report. And uh, 
we were we were thinking that that um, Dawson was thinking that uh, Flannery O'Connor mm. was a r famous writer, and but he happened to be a Christian who writes. Mm. So, and for me, I mean, I didn't explicitly write on Christian things like many people do, but um, um, it's not that I was particularly creative, but it was uh, workmanlike, the stuff I did. Hmm. And did you ever feel that piece of there's your work being transformed somehow by believing that God was giving you the power to do it or that you were giving it to God? Is there something that you could relate to in that? Uh, yes, it mm. was a BC Report was an overtly Christian magazine, and so I totally fit into that. That's so great. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for that, um, for talking about that. And so it, those, that's very connected, I think, and I, I mean, God's a good writer, so it's evident that he put these two things right next to each other, but the second half of the chapter and his instructions are actually about rest and the Sabbath. And this concept was introduced already to the Israelites, but he talks about it again as this last piece of information. And it's so interesting because um, what I feel like I was getting as I was preparing this sermon was how connected work and rest and our ideas about them are. And even thinking about Sabbath and how to keep Sabbath when, like, for example, today, I feel like I'm working. So to yesterday, I was trying to think about, well, what feels okay for me to do on the Sabbath? And I realized that it wasn't even necessarily so much the actions. Would I, you know, help my kid clean their room or would I not? But it was about my mentality. Would I come in and say, you're doing this thing right now, and instead... Actually, and I felt like this was a gift from God, was I went to one of my kids and said, is there anything that's bugging you about your room right now? And she said, no. And I said, okay, well, I thought you did a great job last week, and here's this message again, when you just took 10 minutes on different days, this little bit, this little piece. And she said, yeah, that was really good. And I said, if there's anything you want me to help you with, let me know and I'm happy to help you. And she said, I'm good, actually. And instead, we went to the mall with her auntie. And it was really fun and pretty Sabbathy, actually. So, um, just for reference notes, I actually took this piece from the message, which is uh, it's a translation of the Bible that is paraphrased. But I lined all the scriptures up next to each other, and in this case, it's actually almost word for word, like other scriptures. Our church, we try to use gender inclusive versions from the front when we're teaching. Um, so we often will use the NIV UK or NLT, but this one, I just the language in it to me so communicated the heart of what it was. So this is from Peterson's translation of the message, and I'm now reading Exodus 31, 12 through 17. God spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, above all, keep my Sabbaths. The sign between me and you, generation after generation, to keep the knowledge alive that I am the God who makes you holy. Keep the Sabbath. It's holy to you. Whoever profanes it will most certainly be put to death. Whoever works on it will be excommunicated from the people. There are six days for work, but the seventh day is Sabbath, pure rest, holy to God. 
anyone who works on the Sabbath will most certainly be put to death. The Israelites will keep the Sabbath, observe Sabbath-keeping down through the generations as a standing covenant. It is a fixed sign between me and the Israelites. Yes, because in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he stopped and took a long, deep breath. When he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of testimony, slabs of stone, written with the finger of God. And that was the end of the instruction that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you may have noticed the language in here is pretty strong. Pretty strong. There was a time in Christendom where keeping the Sabbath became a really, really legalistic thing. I know this because I read the Little House on the Prairie stories to my children, and I learned from that and from Farmer Boy how they would do nothing on the Sabbath. Like, they go to church, and then they come home, and they'd have to just sit. And one of my kids' favorite stories is from the book Farmer Boy by Laurie Goldswilder about how he and his brothers got in trouble for breaking the Sabbath because they wanted to go sledding while their father fell asleep. And then they're sliding down a hill, and then a pig accidentally runs across them, and then the pig was on the sled. Anyway, it's a great story. But... I think that keeping the Sabbath for most of us these days is very much about figuring out what that looks like to us, especially those of you who often work on weekends or work on Sundays or your shifts change or your schedules change. It can be really hard to have a, a rhythm and a time set apart. And to me, this idea of trying to think about our freedom and our work in God and the use of our hands as all being dedicated to God helps me think more about Sabbath. Because again, I think it becomes less about the actions that we do or don't do and more about the attitudes of our heart and the attitude towards rest. I feel like God's challenge to me is to be thankful for my nap right now. Because I know that there are so many people who would say to me, I'd love to have a nap every day. Yeah, that's great. I hear you. That's totally valid. That is a totally valid thing. So I'd love to have a heart where I go, wow, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And some days I do. But I'm just being honest with you, I'm not there yet. Right now it feels like something that's happening because my body's broken. That I didn't used to have to do, and now I do have to do. And to me, it feels like weakness. And I resent that. So I'm working on that. And I'm working on keeping my own, uh, keeping my own accountability and my own rest. Because as somebody that a lot of my stress and my concern was around caring for other people and pleasing other people and making other people happy. There's a part of me that has to get to the point where I can be obedient to what it is that God's telling me to do as far as my Sabbath keeping or what I'm supposed to put my hands to. And that is different for each one of us. And that's where I think the Spirit of God has to speak to each one of us to say, what am I responsible for? What can I do right now in my life, in my hands, 
And what this scripture says is that Sabbath is supposed to be a reminder that God made us holy. And I have to be honest with you that I don't totally understand what that means. I'm really reflecting that back to you right now as, as something that we've just read in the word that I noticed and that I stood out to me. The best I can do right now is that holiness to my understanding is somehow coming away and being separate somehow coming away and being dedicated to God. So in my life, which right now feels kind of small and kind of quiet, if I can take the things that God's asked me to do and dedicate those things to his hands, I can recognize the beauty and the value in that. And it's a sign that we're his. Because how mind-blowing is it that God rested? That on the seventh day, God took a long Deep breath is Peterson's translation there. God took a long, deep breath. And the other piece that's really clear here is that to God, Sabbath is a life and death issue. I'm so grateful that I'm not preaching on the section that's going to come in the next or two weeks' time where God actually has the Levites go into the camp with swords and kill people that are not keeping the Sabbath. 3,000 people die. I don't have to exegete all that right now today, but I was talking with Wade about it and said, what do you even do with that? And he said, well, it's a pretty clear sign that this is a life or death issue to God. And he said, you could say that essentially God's saying that if you don't rest, you're going to die anyway. So maybe he's just speeding up the process for you. <laughs> So I was like, huh, that's a way to look at it. Thanks, honey. Um, I, I, I do know that what I have been told is that me choosing not to rest my mind and, and learning that part of that was physiological and was beyond my control, um, which was hard because I really felt like when I got sick that it was all my fault and that it was about stuff that I had done or not done. So I'm learning that there's a piece of it that's beyond my control and I'm learning that there's a piece of it that is about me and the choices that I make. So yeah, once again, I'm just coming to you and sharing where I'm at. Um, I ask for your grace because it feels a little vulnerable to come and share what's going on personally because it's stuff I'm really genuinely wrestling with. Um, uh, and I don't have it all figured out yet. But I also want to be committed to be a part of a community that does that. And that we can say, I'm not here because I figured all of this out. But this is something that is speaking to me, that I'm wrestling with, that um, I need help with day in and day out. And um, I'm really grateful that um, I have a family that loves me. I'm really grateful that I have Mark and Lynn that live next door and, and that often um, Lynn will encourage me if I'm having a rest or reading a book or whatever, she'll say, good for you, that's great. And that's really helpful, it's really helpful. So, um, 
We can take all the right actions, but if our hearts and minds aren't changed, we're not going to work or Sabbath with God's intention behind it. And that's what the people of Israel are journeying through. It was all not even so much about physically where they were or what was happening with their bodies or their minds or their, where their, what their journey, what their physical journey was. It was how they thought about themselves and that transformation to see themselves as God's people. So um, how do we want to finish that? I don't think I want to read that big old long quote. I think... I want to invite you to close your eyes because it's too small for you to read this anyway. And I'm going to read this to you. Let's take a Sabbath minute, if we can right now. So don't try and strain your eyes to read it. I will read this to you. And this is, again, a quote from... I'm going to get this book on Sabbath because he's really good. But this is also from Mark Buchanan talking about the rest of God. So I invite you to close your eyes... Take a deep breath and listen to this almost as a Lectio Divina, if it's helpful for you. J.R.R. Tolkien gives one of the most entrancing descriptions of the true nature of Sabbath. In book one of Lord of the Rings trilogy, he describes a time of rest and healing in the house of Elrod in Rivendell. It's kind of hilarious that Wade's not here for this because he hates Lord of the Rings, and I love Lord of the Rings. Love Lord of the Rings. The hobbits, along with Strider, their guide, have made a dangerous, almost fatal journey to this place. They will soon have to make an even more dangerous, almost certainly fatal journey away from this place. But in the meantime, this. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. I'm going to read that to you one more time. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. That is Sabbath. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to come and speak to us in our weakness, 
each one of us knows what we're good at, what we're not. How well we do at receiving your invitation to do things that give us joy, to use our hands for pleasure, for creativity, for something that relieves our minds and lifts our hearts. And you also know how good, and I don't even know what qualifiers to use, how well we do at entering into your rest. Lord, would you give us trust when we are the ones that have to make things go, when we do have to plan everything, when we feel like the wheels are going to fall off if we don't keep everything going, would you help us to trust you more? For those of us who feel like our lives are too quiet, that we can't bear any more silence, that silence might kill us, would you speak to us? Lord, we ask for living water. Thank you for this good news that you have designed our bodies to need what you call good and that you have made us to rest. Help me, Lord. Help my brothers and my sisters. You know for each one of us our need. Show us if there are ways that we can help each other. And most of all, Lord, would you help us to let you in that you might free us from the slavery that we have in our own minds. Slavery to work or slavery to pleasing people or slavery to, slaving to performance or slavery to sloth. Come, Holy Spirit. We are at the time where we need to release our kids' church workers. who have been working hard. But I want to encourage you if you're feeling like you need to stay in this place of quiet, to stay in a place of quiet. If it's helpful for you, you can move closer to the front. I want to encourage you, if you'd like prayer for this, and there's somebody here that you trust, to turn to somebody that you trust to ask them to pray for you. And if that doesn't feel comfortable for you, then I'm happy to stay and pray. There are other people here that are a part of our oversight team that could do that too. That would be great. You can have your eyes open. But I, uh, I want to bless you now. As uh, we are companions on this journey, companion literally means people that go together and break bread together. So we don't have any physical communion to share together, but I have felt, um, I've felt safe to share today, and I thank you for that. Ask for your prayers, um, for covering. And I bless you now with whatever authority I have as a servant of the Most High King. I think you're supposed to stand up when I bless you today, so let's do that. So I do bless you now to go and seek freedom, to seek freedom and rest. <laughs> 
in Christ this week. And I bless you to go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks.